Hey there, and welcome to season two of Navigating the Pandemic, the show that explores COVID-19 and how it impacts our daily lives. I'm your host, Kat Morgan, and a current Master of Public Health candidate at Columbia University. As a reminder, this season is focused on the social determinants of health, health inequities, and COVID-19. In the last episode, we discussed COVID protections and personal risk assessments. Today, I have the pleasure of welcoming Dr. Matthew Lamb on the show. Dr. Lamb is an assistant professor of epidemiology at the Columbia University Medical Center, focusing on infectious disease prevention, treatment, and scale-up. So thank you so much for coming on the show, Dr. Lamb. Yeah, thanks for having me. Um, so as you said, I'm a assistant professor in the Department of Epidemiology, but I also work at a center uh, at Columbia called ICAP. Most of my research historically has really been uh, focusing on HIV and related illnesses, um, a lot of it in countries uh, around Africa, but not exclusively. And most of my research is focusing on you know, what's loosely described as implementation science. The idea of, well, let's actually go implement a public health program and see if it works. My job is really to be one of the people that helps to design the studies to assess the degree to which you know, our prevention or our treatment um, or even our surveillance efforts are, are working in terms of uh, you know, the number of people we treat, uh, the number of infections we avert, uh, and so on and so forth. I've been here for 10 or 15 years, so I teach a bunch of classes in the Department of Epidemiology, ranging from the first-year master's class, which I teach, uh, all the way to the last semester class that PhD students in epidemiology teach, focusing on more advanced methods. And for interested listeners, Dr. Lamb is actually um, my professor, and so it's a treat to have him on the show today because taking his classes definitely helped me understand epidemiological research better. And so sort of on that note, Dr. Lamb, for listeners who maybe are not as aware of what epidemiology actually is, could you define, you know, what are the types of epidemiological research that are shaping how we have responded and sort of adapted to COVID-19? Sure. Yeah. So epidemiology, like nobody knew what it was until probably 2020. Um, and then I think a lot of people kind of understood one very specific part of epidemiology, the part that focused on modeling how much COVID, what the epidemic curves for COVID is going to look like. That's one very specific part of epidemiology. That part of epidemiology focuses on trying to predict uh, how a contagious disease might you know, move in a population. But that's just one kind of epidemiology. More broadly, epidemiology focuses on identifying causes of disease in populations. And so that's kind of really where most of the folks who are epidemiologists kind of hang their hat is this idea of, can we understand, you know, what drives, why some people get disease and other people don't, why some populations have more disease uh, and others uh, don't. So in terms of what types of epidemiology are useful, I think, in terms of understanding what's been going on for the past years, I think, you know, kind of both of these are really important. You know, we've gotten to the point where People are no longer refreshing their, you know, New York Times COVID curve browser every 30 minutes, uh, which is a nice thing. But we still have to figure out, you know, what's different now and what are some of the kind of consequences of this giant experiment that we've gone through in the last couple of years. I think that is the component that is really popular in science journalism. And now that we're, like you were saying, not in panic mode of 
you know, holy crap, what's happening? This has been, I think I still am sort of like, holy crap, what's happening? Um, but, you know, moving forward and thinking about what are going to be the long-term consequences of COVID-19, could you dive a little bit more into that and talk about how observational and, and longitudinal research is helping us figure out what the long-term impacts of this could be? Big question. So I'll try to kind of, you know, break it down into kind of smaller parts. One thing that epidemiologic research can be very useful for is to try to understand long-term consequences of COVID infection itself. And so one type of study design that we talked about in, you know, in class is a study where we kind of assemble a group of people um, and then we follow that group and that group only over time to kind of see uh, how outcomes uh, you know, happen or don't. So that kind of study is ongoing, for example, with individuals who have recovered from COVID infection to try to understand maybe risk of long COVID um, and maybe longer term complications. Um, we also are interested in, you know, if there's any differential complications, maybe between uh, age groups or between, you know, people of different socioeconomic status, people of different risk factors for comorbidities. So, you know, one thing that, you know, Epi can do is really come up with a rigorous way that we can track the consequences of COVID illness uh, over time. But there's a whole other area of, you know, the COVID pandemic that doesn't really have to do with the infection per se, kind of has to do with everything else that changed as a result of our response to the pandemic. And I think, you know, uh, epi research in combination with kind of research that kind of grew up in other neighborhoods, like in economics and education research, um, is really useful for that. For example, you know, in March, April, May 2020, we essentially changed the way that we lived quite abruptly. Um, and this has a myriad consequences. The thing that makes it a little bit challenging to identify um, is that kind of everybody was exposed to kind of a pandemic response in different degrees. And so it's kind of hard to find an unexposed group. And so often what we do in that situation is we try to you know, compare things in different times or compare areas that had more versus a less type of response. You know, one thing that's near and dear to my heart, I'm a parent, is uh, to try to understand, you know, what living through the pandemic, you know, might have been like or what consequences there might be for kids. So one thing that, you know, an epi researcher might be really interested in is comparing kids who spent a longer amount of time in remote learning versus kids who were able to go back to school a little bit sooner, or even compare kids at schools that had mask mandates versus kids who went to schools that didn't have mask mandates. We've seen kind of pretty substantially that you know, overall test scores on math, for example, went down quite a bit for all students. They seem to be more pronounced um, among students who are in remote learning for longer. Um, and these are some of the kind of longer term consequences that we're, you know, we're still trying to, to understand and maybe think about some lessons learned for you know, future you know, large scale global uh, emergencies. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's as somebody who's in public health, but a little bit more tangential to epi itself, it is interesting to look at the changes in study focus. You know, early in the pandemic, it was trying to figure out how does COVID-19 spread? And now it's, okay, how is this impacting us all on a societal and an individual level? And like you were saying, disparities and differences and these effects and these impacts. I'm also curious if you'd be able to touch on how COVID-19 has impacted epidemiological research that doesn't necessarily focus directly on COVID. So I know you've done a lot of work on HIV research, and I was just wondering if you'd be able to talk about how the pandemic has impacted your own research project. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I think um, 
you know, kind of the, a very simple example of how COVID research might have impacted all research in many, many countries kind of involves how we collect information. You know, we had studies ongoing that we would be going to interview individuals. For example, we were doing a study focusing on commercial sex workers in Kenya. Um, and the goal was to have a follow-up of commercial sex workers who were at risk of HIV acquisition. We were providing them with pre-exposure prophylaxis, um, but they were going to follow them over time to assess risk of HIV uh, acquisition, among other things. Fast forward to maybe April 2020, when there were lockdown measures in place so that it was considered to be, um, you know, an unnecessary risk to kind of go and have in-person interviews with individuals uh, for fear of transmitting COVID to each other. So the study was kind of paused. And so just operationally, during the time period in which there was stay-at-home orders or social distancing orders, a lot of in-person research just kind of had to stop. And so we had to get creative about how to, how to collect information. Another aspect of this, outside of just how do you collect information when you, you know, when you can't, you know, visit somebody, is, you know, is the quality of information the same if you're sitting in front of somebody versus if you're, you know, speaking to them over a computer? And so we have to do some uh, assessments of is the quality of data different for in-person interviews versus remote interviews? It's kind of changing how we think about validity in our studies. Third thing that, you know, I think is more directly related to consequences of, you know, the COVID pandemic and lockdown itself is to try to think through, are there some things that people should have done for their own health that they didn't do out of fear of going to a hospital? And so a few of the studies that I've worked on, you know, one in New York City with a grad student focusing on pregnancy delivery complications in New York City, and one focusing on care and treatment for HIV across, I think, 10 or 12 countries in mostly sub-Saharan Africa. For these, we um, really try to compare the amount of times you went to the hospital changed in places that had more severe lockdown guidelines in place versus countries that had less severe lockdown guidelines in place. Uh, so in sub-Saharan Africa, for example, we found that right around March through June, July of 2020, there was a pretty big drop in the number of people who went to go get an HIV test. But that drop was really pronounced uh, only in countries uh, that had pretty stringent stay-at-home orders. We kind of found that there was this unintended consequence where if you kind of tell people to kind of restrain from doing daily activities, they might also restrain from doing things that are preventive uh, in nature. Um, so that's something we found for a lot of other non-COVID-related findings. Absolutely. I think you know, while you were describing some of the findings and the considerations that you had to take in adapting to COVID while conducting research, like mid-research, just as my last question, I wanted to ask if you would be willing to speak on sort of the social determinants a little bit more of COVID-19. Everybody is in an exposed population. And so I'm curious if you could describe to listeners what are some considerations that an epidemiologist might make or that you have seen um, your colleagues make when trying to determine differential impacts of the pandemic on groups? Like we've talked about how communities of color have a real disproportionate burden of COVID-19. You know, hopefully the next pandemic is far on the horizon, um, but <laughs> yep. sort of like thinking about what have we learned what can we, you know, do again if this ever happens? 
could you sort of dive into that? I don't know if I hope that question makes yeah, sense. I mean, I think uh, it's a big question. And I think, you know, there's kind of a few different components that I would feel comfortable talking about. I think, number one, in many countries, like there's this kind of theory that I think is pretty well justified that, you know, disease affects poor people more. And that's just how it is. It sucks. Um, and uh, it's just one of these kind of fundamental kind of truisms, like uh, as if it, there's an emergent disease, like it's going to find its way to the poor people, to the people who are socially marginalized, the people who are uh, stigmatized, so on and so forth. And we see this with most illnesses. COVID was not an exception. At the beginning of the pandemic, you know, there was less of a differential impact very early, focusing on New York City, for example. You know, the very beginning of the pandemic, the proportion of individuals testing positive for COVID, you know, wasn't super socially determined, but it didn't last very long. Um, and then quite quickly, the proportion who were testing positive uh, and the proportion who were having severe complications tended to be in groups that have lower socioeconomic standing. You know, I think focusing on New York City, I think, because uh, I, I did some work uh, in New York City, what I think was uh, interesting is how the kind of response to the pandemic uh, was kind of set up where it most likely disproportionately impacted individuals who couldn't take advantage of, you know, remote working. So this kind of change in our, all of our lifestyles, like all of us who are, you know, richer worked at home. It was kind of annoying. If I, you know, worked at a grocery store, you can't do that remotely. And so there was this idea of, you know, an increased assumption of risk among individuals who couldn't kind of shift their working environment to a, a remote situation. So I think uh, at the very beginning, there was kind of this idea that um, rich people are going to find a way to become less exposed um, than people of lower socioeconomic status. You know, I think that was probably true going forward until like about, you know, January, February, March 2021, when um, vaccines became routinely available. I think the thing that's very interesting about, you know, the vaccine rollout was the vaccines are awesome. And I think we forget that they dr dramatically reduced the case mortality ratio. The probability of having a very severe consequence of infection, given that you're infected, it reduced your probability of transmitting to other people, and it reduces your chance of getting infected in the first place. In New York City, I believe that the city did a very good job of rolling out vaccines in a way that targeted areas that were of lower socioeconomic standing. There was a really strong public health rollout in which, you know, it's very easy after maybe March, April 2021 to get a vaccine if you wanted one. The thing that didn't change, though, was that individuals of lower socioeconomic standing were less likely to want a vaccine. And so uh, this is something that I think we didn't do a good job on, is we didn't do a good job for whatever reason in increasing the amount of people who wanted a vaccine uh, among the populations who, at least statistically, could benefit the most from them. And so I think this still continues. It's kind of an unsolved problem in public health is how do you get people to do something that they don't want to do? So I think that that's probably above my pay grade, but that's something that people who have uh, more of a sociologic bent can help out with. I mean, I yeah, can ramble I about think... this for hours, but like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for sort of like diving into that and, and giving an overview because I know it was a really big question yeah. but it's a it's an important one and it's great for people to have the opportunity to consider all of these really critical factors that do play into disproportionate COVID-19 outcomes so thank you so much for coming on the show Dr. Lamb it's been such a pleasure and I know that 
people who maybe were scared of the word epidemiology now probably feel, you know, much more interested and aware um, of the field. So thank you again for, for sharing all of these really important insights. Great. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it.